the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to episode two of the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean, joined as always by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? Hi, Jared. This podcast is about creating a conversation, a forward-focused and positive conversation on the major issues that are facing Northern Ireland. Part of that is that we're engaging and interviewing a range of different people. So, Paul, who are we talking to for this episode? We have Mike Nesbitt, who not only is the former leader of the Ulster Party and still an MLA, he also significantly is a former Victims Commissioner. Mm-hmm. So Mike is probably one of the most interesting political voices in Northern Ireland today, and we were very pleased indeed to have the opportunity of talking to him at uh, a, a time slightly noisy cafe in Stormont. They always seem to be in noisy cafes, Paul. That's, that's, that's the nature of these interviews. But I talk, there's a few really interesting things I find from Mike's conversation that we're going to hear from soon. But it was about uh, some of the, the challenges or the learning that they've seen from nationalist collaboration on issues such as Brexit and movements being built there and the change in demographics in Northern Ireland and the challenge that that represents for unionism. And what about you? Yeah, at the same point, really, mm. uh, Gerard. Mike was very clear that uh, what happened within civic nationalism when they organised around the Waterfront Hall mm. debate uh, a few weeks ago really is something that unionism needs to think about and learn from. Uh, and it needs to be the type of civic unionism that's equivalent to civic nationalism that needs to be formed and created on a cross-party basis. And also the other point, which I think is really important and draws on his experience as a victims commissioner, is the need to emphasise from the troubles the commonality of the experience, rather than people to think that their own experience is unique, but to recognise that whatever the background was, the troubles was a shared experience, Mm. which inflicted horrors on all communities. Let's hear the interview from Mike now. I think that's a fascinating question to me because on one level, when you look at civil society and the fact that Stormont hasn't met for over two years, you could easily form the impression that people don't care anymore, that they've just moved on uh, and forgotten about us. But on another level, you, you look at something like what happened at the Waterfront Hall a couple of weeks ago when nationalism came together uh, and you can see the energy uh, that is there, which is in total sharp contrast to my previous statement. So I think if, if you put the right proposition to people, uh, they're willing to listen, they're willing to get involved, and they're, they're willing to be, to be activists. What concerns me from, from a unionist perspective is that we are in danger of becoming the famous frog that Charles Handy used to talk about. He was a business guru who said, if you take a particular frog and you put it in a pan of cold water and very, very slowly heat it to boiling point, the frog dies because at no point does it realise the environment around it has changed until the point it's too late. And unionism needs to look and recognise that the environment around us is changing. The demographics are changing. That does not mean a united Ireland is inevitable, uh, but it is something we need to be aware of. Scottish nationalism is a threat to the union. English nationalism is a threat to the Union. And I would actually go as far as to say that I believe the DUP in some of their policies and their attitudes and their tone is a long-term threat to the Union. So I would like to see civic unionism uh, becoming more active. Uh, A few years ago with Peter Robinson, 
uh, I tried to activate them through the Unionist Forum. And that was never going to work because although we got a lot of people in the room, some in the room were there to try and destroy the concept uh, from the get-go. So I looked quite enviously uh, at, at civic nationalism and their ability to come together in such big numbers at such, such short notice in the Waterfront Hall uh, and appear to emerge uh, with the United Front. So I think it's up to, to the politicians to give some leadership here and try and energize people. Uh, I think we also need to learn that what we did in 98 was get power back from Westminster. But since then we have held it here on the hill and it is long past time where we devolved the power off the hill into councils, through councils, into communities because the closer you get informed decision making to the domestic unit, whatever that happens to be, the more the chance that you will facilitate positive change in people's lives. But perhaps we need to build civic society that goes beyond the division and the politics of unionism and nationalism. We, we struggle uh, when we talk about building a shared future. Uh, what I discovered during my years of leadership uh, every July going out to Flanders Fields was that we had a shared past, a shared past in service and sacrifice. And again, people who maybe aren't interested in, in the history of the First World War will think that it's all about 36th Ulster Division uh, and the Ulster Tower. But actually, on the 1st of July, there were three events. First is at Thiepval, and that's for everybody who fought. The second is the Ulster Tower, which is for the 36th Ulster Division. But then everybody decants to a little French village called Guillemot, where the memorial is for the 10th Irish Division, for Redmond's men. And the first time I went there, when, when it was all over, I saw people, including men in orange sashes from the Orange Order, stand proudly to attention for the national anthems of France, the United Kingdom and Ireland. And I thought that, that was magnificent, that there is a shared past in service and the ultimate sacrifice. And perhaps if we were to send particularly our primary school children out to take a look, we could change the dynamic without changing the narrative. So assuming the objective is that we build a shared and integrated society, that's an example of what we can do. I mean, more broadly, what do you think we should be doing? I think we, what we have to recognise, first of all, is that nobody is going away. We could all get cryogenically frozen five years, 15, 50 years, but when we come back, there are still going to be Irish Republicans and Nationalists, going to be British Unionists and Loyalists, and people who describe themselves as other on this little postage stamp on planet Earth. Nobody's going away, so we need to learn to share. We also need to recognise nobody owns this piece of planet Earth. So we have to learn to share. If you go back to the first page of the Belfast Agreement, uh, where it talks about building new relationships, the first value is tolerance of each other. I think it's time to move beyond tolerance because to me tolerance is simply saying I will accept you here. I won't necessarily be positive about it, I just won't be negative about it. I think we need to learn to be positive and use our diversity as a strength. And there has to be political leadership for that. What I find strange uh, when, when I made my pitch for the Ulster Unionists working with the SDLP uh, and trying to go for a post-sectarian election was that nobody seemed, or very few, seemed to recognise that in our elections, unlike a general election where 
one party tends to win the town Downing Street. After an assembly election, two parties must go into Stormont Castle, the equivalent of Downing Street. One unionist, one nationalist. Why do unionists only express an opinion on which unionist party they want on the ground floor when they have a single transferable vote and could equally express an opinion about whether they would like the SDLP or Sinn Féin on the first floor? And equally nationalists, by and large, tend to only express an opinion about whether they want Sinn Féin or the SDLP. And I think that's where we, we have to get to. To talk it in political terms, when Colm Eastwood took over the SDLP, I heard him use a phrase that I'd been using, let's make Northern Ireland work. And when I talked to him, we were using the same measurements, quality of the health service, education system, prosperity of our people, measured not just in how many pounds in their back pockets and purses, although that's important, but also their sense of well-being. And I think everybody now recognises that Northern Ireland, per head of population, has one of the worst rates of poor mental health and well-being on planet Earth. And if you set your political stall to trying to fix all that and improve all that, that's a lifetime's work. And then the constitutional question becomes an issue for my children or my grandchildren. But for the time being, the conversation that you're talking about is about a shared society rather than an integrated society. So we're talking about power sharing and the funding was for shared housing and for Uh, shared education. And shared education involves potentially a shared campus where different schools look at each other rather than actually learning to be together. Yes, and I want to go beyond that from from a shared education to a single education system. And what I've learned... Uh, not only that this has been a consistent policy of the Ulster Unionist Party since 1921, Lord Londonderry was the first minister, right through to Basil MacIver in the 70s, who was the last. Actually, when I say I want to see a single education system, those who are not in the state system think it's an attack that I am trying to take something off them, like the Catholic maintained system. And that is not the case. And I have to redouble my efforts and be at pains to say, no, what I'm talking about is saying, let's take the best of every sector within the education system and put them together into a single education system. If the Catholic ethos in education is good for Catholic children, why can it not be good for non-Catholic children? So let's, let's embrace everything and bring out something that works for everybody. That involves the type of conversation that's probably never taken place about how you would actually integrate the existing educational systems together. Those conversations have been taking place in my experience, but very quietly and in the background. Um, And I I don't know that anybody is ready to really bring those conversations out into the the public realm. Um, But some of the in-camera Chatham House conversations I have had which has involved other politicians, have been, from my point of view, incredibly positive in that everybody starts from a basis of recognising that the way we're educating our children at the moment is, is not viable and sustainable. The alternatives or the options for difference um, inevitably bring you towards a single education system, however you're defining it. So I'm actually quite optimistic that, that we can get to where we want to get to but not necessarily in the timeline that I would like to see it. But that system is also the system we have at the moment, very expensive. There's an awful lot of wastage by having duplicated systems. And you also made the point there 
think you and Colin Eastwood and the SDRP were talking about the same language about making Northern Ireland work. And if you're going to move towards reducing the fiscal cost, the fiscal deficit in Northern Ireland, then you have to achieve savings, which potentially is both beneficial to unions to argue their place within the union and also to Republicans arguing the potential viability of Irish unity. And I think that position of saying we cannot afford to keep doing what we're doing is the baseline which has brought everybody together to say we actually need to talk about this. It's maybe not the ideal place that I would like everybody to start from. I would rather start from a position of saying we are failing a lot of children in the way we are, are educating them. I believe, although I'm from a grammar school background, that we overvalue the academic intelligence over all the other intelligences. I believe inside every child without fail there's some spark of ability, creativity, talent. You may discover that in the classroom, and if you do, that's fine. But equally, it is fine if you discover it playing a musical instrument, acting on stage, kicking a ball around a field. As long as you find it, and that spark then becomes a far passion for life and learning. And, and that's the sort of education system I would like to see for all our children. Now, that's one of the difficult conversations we need. Another one, which seems to overshadow lots of things, is how we deal with the past and how we deal with the events of the Troubles. I mean, how do you think we can have that conversation without causing difficulty? As a Victims Commissioner, I spoke to a lot of people. Victims are not an homogenous group of people, but there there are common experiences. And and the one that that first hit me and, and hit me very hard was that you might think that if something catastrophic happened to you, like you were injured or you lost your, your partner, your loved one was killed, that the first thing that would happen was the state would form the wagons in a circle. So if you needed medical help, the health service was there for you. If you needed your children taken to school, the education system was there for you. The common experience was you were ignored and forgotten. So then if you look at, at a comprehensive assessment of the needs of victims, you will find that truth and justice is not even on the podium. It's not in the top three. And the top three is mental health and well-being. Now, I accept that some people's poor mental health and well-being is directly attributable to the fact they haven't had truth and justice. So we've got concentric circles going on here. But if we tackled mental health and well-being in a very serious way, uh, we would help an awful lot of victims uh, to get to a better place. And maybe... place where they are reconciled to what has happened to them. And the commonality of the experience of receiving poor mental health and well-being because of a catastrophic act that happened to them, the commonality of that fact, irrespective of who or why it happened or who was responsible for it happening, may actually help us. The interesting thing about that is that implies a, a, a disconnect between what the victims feel and what the politicians argue for, because the political narrative is very much about justice and then different views about what the word justice means. And and you will recall when I was appointed Victims Commissioner, they actually appointed four commissioners Mm. out out of the blue, and I'll not rehearse what went on there, but the four of us had to sit down and try and find a way to work together uh, in much the same way you might ask four chief constables to run the PSNI. It was an incredibly challenging thing to do. But one of, one of the really worthwhile debates we had early on, looking at the legislation that underpinned our existence, was we were there to be champions of the best interests of victims. 
The question then is, what represents the best interests of victims? Is it what they tell you they want, or is it what you think they need? And I think politicians need to learn to listen harder to victims and what they need. They may conclude at the end of that that sometimes what victims want is not in their best interest. For example, if you have a vulnerable victim who, who is prone to uh, taking too much alcohol, giving them a big lump sum of money clearly may not be in their best interest, even if that's what they say they really, really want. But there is a disconnect between what victims want and what society wants. When I was leading the Unionist Party through all the talks, what I tried to get the others to do was say, take a blank page and let's go right back to basics. First of all, define dealing with the past. What do we mean by dealing with the past? And secondly, for whose benefit do we want to do it? Because if it is for victims and survivors, that's perfectly understandable, that's a perfectly valid thing to do, but it takes you down one path. If you want to deal with the past in a way that allows society to move on, that may be a different path and may involve additional pain for victims and survivors. We have to decide that. But you I, don't want to re-traumatise victims either, of course. No, you, you don't want to, but if you want to move society forward, can that be done with no pain to any single victim? I'm not sure it necessarily can. And in the same way, when we talk of reconciliation, I suggested to the other four main party leaders, if we took blank pages in five minutes to define what we meant by reconciliation, we could well get five extremely different definitions. Nobody disagreed with me that that could be the outcome, but nobody was prepared to do it. And my, my final thought, as I was on dealing with the past, from, from a political point of view, was that we're talking about putting processes in place, uh, some which would be legal, judicial, some which would be more about information recovery, but only at the end would politicians come in and make some sort of statement. My view was that all the leaders, local political parties, British government, Irish government, American government, before we began, should stand shoulder to shoulder in the steps of Stormont and say, look, whatever happened, nobody has clean hands here. We all have a responsibility. We cannot change the past, but we can deal with the legacy of the past, and we commit as a collective to do that. And I think in terms of the message you're sending the public to do it at the beginning of the process is a much stronger, empowering message than waiting until you know effectively what you're fessing up to at the end of the process. But if we're talking about the difficult conversations that need to be had, there's perhaps none more difficult than the question of the future constitutional arrangements. I mean, how, how do we de-dramatise the constitutional question? Well, I suppose the first thing I should say is, as a unionist, I believe in the constitutional status quo. I believe we're better off in the union for reasons which I, I can reel off. And I say that to make the point that it's not for me to argue for change. It's for nationalists to argue for change. But I think it is now incredibly important that they make those arguments based on the experience of the Brexit referendum. Because in June 2016, People voted without knowing exactly what the consequences would be if they voted to exit the European Union. And it would be an utter disaster to have a border poll on the same kind of emotional knee-jerk reaction without knowing exactly what would happen. If the 
uh, post boxes were green, would people mind? Is it an issue? It might be, and if it is, we need to know it's an issue and then consider whether we need to deal with it. If you are having a parking or a speeding fine brought to your front door by a policeman and you open that door and he's in the uniform of the Garda Shikona, is that an issue? Well, we need to know whether it's an issue for how many people and how big an issue it is. But that is for nationalism to figure out and to process. So that if we do have a border poll, we're doing it with the certainty that was missing back in June 26, 2016. And beyond that, are there any frameworks of how those conversations should take place? I'm not sure there are any frameworks in place uh, at the moment. Uh, but if there are, I would strongly encourage unionism to engage because it is my experience, not only as a politician, but before that, uh, as a journalist, that unionism is not good at engaging with others. The best example I can give you is 25 years ago this month, Jerry Adams got his 48-hour visa uh, from Bill Clinton to go to a conference in New York, a conference that Jim Molyneux of the Ulster Unionists and Ian Pace of the DUP had already signed up to speak at. But when Jerry Adams got his ticket, the two unionist leaders not only withdrew from the conference, they cancelled their flights and they stayed home, leaving the pitch clear to Jerry Adams. And then the unionists complained that the White House is green. Well, what do you expect when you only hear one side of the story? You know, Paisley and Molno should have gone to New York. They should have had their own event before the conference. And they could have said, well, when you go across the road, ask Mr. Adams uh, about Gene McConville and the disappeared. Ask him about Bloody Friday. Ask him about the mall, a napalm bomb, civilians in a hotel. Americans would, would have understood. So I am, I am for engaging, and not just to rant, as I may have just ranted against, <laughs> against the former president of Sinn Féin, but to go and to engage and say, we are confident about who we are and what we stand for. Let's talk. Let's see where there's commonality. And there might be a lot more than we imagine. And perhaps on the note of saying engagement's a good thing, that's probably a good note to finish. Thank you very much. Indeed. You're welcome. On the constitutional question that came up with Mike there, I find it really interesting about the Brexit comparison and the the looking before you know what's going to happen. Absolutely. And, and Mike was very clear that the, the, the real threat to the union, which obviously he values enormously as a unionist, comes from English nationalism. Mm. And that, that actually creates a threat to unionism within Northern Ireland that unionism needs to think about, to, to reflect on and to, to develop strategies in response to. Okay. Well, that was the second of over 30 conversations and, and interviews that we're going to have as part of this Future Together podcast. You can get and listen to future episodes through your podcast app or access the, the different episodes that are, as they're released through the Hollywell Trust website, hollywelltrust.com, the Slugger O'Toole site, sluggerotool.com, and through the Hive Studio site, hivestudio.com. Edited highlights are also available through Drive 105. So that's it for our second Forward Together podcast. Thanks to Mike Nesbitt for taking the time to meet with us and keep an eye out for future episodes. Thanks for listening. The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.